0: Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today, go to betterhelp.com backslash and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, Quadcast Nation now begins. Check it. People, I am mad excited to bring you this episode. This is with registered dietitian, Kara Collier, and we talk about continuous glucose monitoring and piggybacks on the episode we did just last week with Dr. Jason Fong and Dr. Stephen Tucker on, on lifestyle modifications and how that can impact cancer outcomes. And one of the key Tools that we, they were talking about was using continuous glucose monitoring, and I know what a lot of y'all are thinking: like, why use continuous glucose monitoring if you're not diabetic? But it gives you a sense of your metabolic health, what you're at risk for, what foods drive your insulin uh, spikes, how stress, how poor sleep can affect it. And let me tell you: so I I tried this out. We did this episode out back in September with Kara Collier, and she is one of the key members of the NutriSense team. So they're, they're really a group that is there to optimize your health using continuous glucose monitoring. So I tried this out and boy, did I love it. I loved it. So for two weeks, you could see how things like what you eat, poor sleep, stress impacted my blood sugar readings. And so like things like that really, like a couple of lessons that I learned when I weight trained, man, did that ever level off things, which is like, consisted in the literature in terms of uh, improving your insulin sensitivity. White rice, like I could eat a cake, I could eat cookies, but white rice for whatever reason would just spike that bad boy. Having high protein with my carbs really reduced the uh, the blood sugar spikes. And when I was on call, that was an, another time when you know poor sleep would lead to uh worsening uh numbers. And once again, these are Depending on where you are with your lifestyle, like you don't want to wait to be diabetic. These are signs that you could be improving your health before you get there. You know, more efficient ways of losing weight. Like I loved what Car and the Nutrisense team was throwing down. So, um, if you are interested, use a promo code Solving Healthcare. Go to Nutrisense. Io and um, you'll get twenty dollars off of sign-up fees. If you, if you haven't seen the cancer episode with Jason Fung and Dr. Stephen Tucker, go to solvinghealthcare.ca cancer, and you'll be able to check that out there, get a, the video and the audio up in there. But yeah, guys, I, I got to bring this episode to you, Carl Collier. Like I said, registered dietitian, all things NutriSense, throwing down knowledge on why continuous glucose monitoring can make a difference. So without further ado, let's do this. Kara Collier, Kara, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Oh, I was totally excited to have you on. I heard you on an earlier podcast uh, a couple months ago, and you were inspired me to, to get to do better in terms of um, maybe introducing some of these techniques to some of our patients and and so tell us maybe even the story how you got to uh, to where you are in terms of evaluating metabolic health, considering continuous glucose monitoring? Because you are you you came from a traditional story, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah,
1: that's correct. So as you said, I'm a registered dietitian, but I started my career in the traditional healthcare system. So just like you, I was actually in the ICU. So oh, I was snap. an ICU dietitian. Yes, you yes. probably oh, have man. a lot. We, we got common. a lot to
0: talk about then. Okay. Yes. Okay. Spent
1: a couple years in a few different ICUs and You know, I was mostly doing tube feeds, TPN, you know, IV nutrition, and then quick consults for people who are in critical condition. So as you are aware, it is not a great situation or time and place to make meaningful lifestyle changes. Um, And what I was seeing all the time of people coming in and out is that they're there with complications of lifestyle-related chronic conditions most of the time. You know, most of the patients I was seeing were not a gunshot wound or a car accident, but they were, you know, a DKA or a diabetic foot ulcer or needing emergency hemodialysis, something related to lifestyle-related choices. And it was very frustrating for me being in that environment So for for many reasons, I felt like I was seeing a lot of suffering over and over that could have been avoided if I was brought into the situation 20, 30, 40 years earlier. I felt like I was catching people way, way, way too late, right? It doesn't take five years even to develop these complications. It takes 40 years of bad habits where, you know, first you're having some trouble and then insulin resistance and then multiple chronic conditions and then complications. I'm seeing people way too late. So I felt like I was seeing a lot of unnecessary suffering, which is really unfortunate. And then I also felt like the system I was working in was not helping me achieve the goals that I wanted to achieve. So So both from my traditional dietetics teachings, I felt like when I could reach somebody that the training I was taught was not enough to help these people. So when somebody has three chronic conditions and uncontrolled diabetes, me telling them to carb count and keep consistent carbs throughout the day wasn't cutting it, wasn't seeing any sort of beneficial impact from those interventions. And then just the system itself, you know, it's, it's built to be treating the symptoms you're coming in with, you know, mm-hmm. fix that, address that, get you out as quickly as possible. We don't want people spending excessive time in the hospital, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. But we were leaving them unprepared to prevent coming back in you know, we're seeing lots of frequent flyers, people coming in and out with the same problems. And, you know, maybe it's a brand new diabetic, didn't know they have a diabetic because I never go to the doctor and now they're having all these complications. And here I am, and I'm like, here's all this information, um, do these things. And they're like, okay, you know, that's not setting somebody up for success. So lots of frustrations, great experience seeing how it really works. But what I took away from that is that I wanted to do something that was addressing the root problem rather than the symptoms. And I wanted to do something that was catching people early rather than late. And I wanted to do something that was intrinsically motivating to people. That was my final frustration was, even if I'm, I'm giving the right recommendations I'm catching people early, the lack of motivation from the patients themselves is frustrating. Um, you know, you can you can't force somebody to make changes. You have to somehow inspire and intrinsically motivate them to change. Mm-hmm. So those were, you know, my culmination of frustrations. And from there I sort of jumped ship and was really thinking about these problems. And it all came back to okay, what do these conditions have in common? It's metabolic dysfunction, it's insulin resistance all of these conditions have insulin resistance tied at the root of them. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking, if I can do one thing, what's the biggest bang for the buck is addressing insulin resistance. So I started researching this, obsessing over this and came across the power of a continuous glucose monitor, which traditionally is really only used for insulin dependent diabetics. So Type 1 diabetics and some type 2 diabetics, only about 30% of type 2 diabetics are even using CGMs, Um, so it's not even that widespread in the diabetic population, but this is basically a technology that tells your glucose Mm 24-7, and I was realizing if we could put this on everybody before they become a diabetic, we can make meaningful change in insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. And so I became obsessed with this technology and then met up with two other people, somebody in tech and somebody in business, and we started the company NutriSense. And that is what we're trying to do. Um, We're using this technology on non-diabetics so that they can learn what's happening inside of their bodies, that they can fix problems early on as opposed to way, way down the road. And then they're more motivated for behavior change because they have data from their own body, not generic you know, recommendations, it's real data from their real body, and it's coming at them 24-7. There's nothing more motivating than, you know, you do something and you get some sort of signal right away. You know, you you eat something or you don't eat something or you exercise or you don't exercise and you you get a signal right away that was good or bad, as opposed to right now we have this huge delay in either consequences or benefits from our decisions. That's part of what makes nutrition and lifestyle intervention so difficult for patients to hold on to is because, you know, you could eat cake for dinner every night and you're not going to see the negative consequences for maybe 30 years. That's, yeah. that's hard to break that habit when in the moment it tastes pretty freaking good, right? Yeah. So I want that cake in the moment. But if I can get feedback right, right then and there, it's much more motivating. So that's sort of like a high level where it came from, what we're doing now, and why I'm super, super excited about this stuff.
0: Oh my God. I I, future, I'm, yeah. yeah, no, I'm so excited because like you you were front lines. You saw the negative impact that insulin resistance was having in front of you. You seeing those amputations, you seeing the patients need to go on dialysis. Like, like I can't emphasize how inflammation, insulin resistance is a root cause, as you said, of so much shit. Right. And so if we could get attacked at early, like this is what I love. It. It's like the motivation was like similar to what we're doing. We're like, we don't want to see you in the ICU. What can we do to prevent you from walking in the door? And the beauty of what you're describing, CGM or continuous glucose monitoring, that feedback, it provides the, the patient and the um, intrinsic, as you put it, motivation to want to get better when they see that feedback, like whether it's good or bad. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment a bit about how volatile, like, actually let's take a step back. Like what, you know, in terms of metabolic health, like the, the importance or the physiology of staying relatively within, um, uh, like having a a controlled glucose, like the, the really maybe dive in, in a bit in terms of the, the importance of that
1: definitely. Yeah, so it's it's very important not just to not have diabetes and chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular disease. That's sort of the last step that happens with abnormal glucose values and insulin resistance. But the damage starts if we go into more of a zoomed in level, it's you know, I don't have diabetes, why should I care about my glucose levels? It starts really really far back before you do have diabetes. So damage is done both on uh, microvasculature and macrovasculature level in the body. And it's mostly slow and silent for a long time. So if we looked in at like a zoomed in level at the cell, a few things are happening when either our glucose is going really high or it's just kind of like swinging around all day. Um, We can talk about like what you're looking for in good glucose values, but we don't want a lot of glycemic variability. And when we're having a lot of swings in our glucose or really high glucose values and a really zoomed in level, this is putting a lot of stress on our mitochondria. So mitochondria in our cells are the site for these metabolic reactions, right? They have to process the energy and turn it into something useful and it's kind of like if you know our metabolic engine our metabolic health is a car and an engine that's what runs us if we're putting a lot of stress on the mitochondria huge glucose load or a lot of energy it's like putting the gas pedal all the way down to the floor the car is still going to run it still wants to get the job done but it's going to be working overtime there's going to be some consequences related to that so creates free radicals, oxidative damage when the mitochondria are stressed and working really hard to process all this energy you threw at it. And so as we know, oxidative damage and inflammation can then lead to, if we're we're repeating that on a regular basis, that can circle into insulin resistance over time. So there's inflammation at the site of the mitochondria And then each glucose spike is also an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease because this is damaging the endothelial cells. So there's this concept of glucotoxicity. Too much glucose in the bloodstream is literally toxic. So if you're not insulin resistant and you have a big glucose spike, your body should be able to handle it and process it, but it's still going to spike up and that's going to cause a little bit of damage to the endothelial cells. So... Atherosclerosis, at the end of the day, is damage to our blood vessels, which is followed by an inflammatory process to heal that. So repeated abuses, again, can lead to cardiovascular disease. So hyperglycemia is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And then if, if we're having this negative feedback loop where there's always more damage than Correction. So, this short term damage, occasionally a glucose spike is not going to cause insulin resistance, right? Short term damage is the body has systems in place to fix this and reverse this. But if they're compounding and we keep having a glucose spike every morning because we're having cereal and juice and a bagel for breakfast, this is going to put us into a negative feedback loop where our body is not able to completely repair in between periods of damage. And so when we get into that cycle, we're having hyperinsulinemia, we're having inflammation, we're having endothelial damage, we get that over and over, and that can lead into the cycle of insulin resistance and greater problems. So it's about repeated abuse. You know, I don't want people to think you can never have anything bad, or you have to be good all the time. It's about our consistent habits over time.
0: Very well put. And, and like you said, it's not only the highs in terms of your, your glucose, but the swings of variability. Mm-hmm. And if, if I'm not mistaken too, how do you feel when you're having those swings?
1: Pretty bad, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't recognize this because their normal is normal. You know, if this is your normal, you're like, oh, I, this is just how people feel. And a lot of times when you are connecting data to how you feel, you can really enhance that, mind-body connection so you can start to feel oh i see when i have this huge spike and then it crashes down some reactive hypoglycemia which is very common that i'm feeling an energy crash there and then i have some brain fog and then i'm feeling a little fatigue and i need another coffee and i probably put some sugar in it and then it happened again you start to increase this mind-body connection and you can say oh now i independently know how i feel when my glucose goes to a certain level But a lot of times, if you don't have the data to connect that, it's hard to understand that and quantify it. But the more feedback you get from real data, the more you can you know how you're feeling at certain points, and it doesn't feel great. Trust
0: me. I I mean I'm speaking personally. Like I would love to have that kind of knowledge. Like you have you you know you're a nice ICU. You have a a relatively big lunch. Maybe it's high in carbs. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. And then it's two p.m. and you are just like. I would love to take a nap right now. I would love to have that mm-hmm. double espresso, um, and to to have that feedback and really know what tr- the triggers are. I think it really, for me and, and many of us, enhance performance and acuity and just be able to uh, to be better. Um, so, what I mean, what can make us have those swings like you and hide those high glucose. Cause I, I know obviously if you're eating jube jubes and Dunkin' Donuts, no offense, Dunkin' Donuts, if I'm allowed <laughs> to say that, but like, you know what I mean? If you're eating donuts all the time, like uh, yeah, that's the expectation. But I think part of the intriguing part of doing continuous glucose monitoring is you'd be surprised at stuff that can alter your, your glucose. So any thoughts on the causes?
1: Definitely, yeah. There are a lot of causes, but something interesting to know is that we have very unique personalized responses to food. Um, I know you believe in this, I believe in this, but I'm always trying to tell customers and and anybody who will listen that there is not a one-size-fits-all diet, and we are all unique compilations of genetics, epigenetics, microbiome, and we have different responses to food. So, Probably everyone's gonna spike from that donut and sugary coffee. That's expected. Nobody is surprised there. But we all have unique responses to food that are healthy, whole foods. So, you know, I usually give the example of some of the foods that give me the highest glucose spikes are quinoa, is like consistently mm. sweet potatoes, and pineapple, which is a higher glycemic fruit. But those are like three where it's like, I don't even really like those foods that much. So I don't even <laughs> touch them anymore because I know. But like somebody else on my team, she has very minimal response at all to sweet potatoes. So that's one of her go-to carbs because it works really well for her. But for some reason, doesn't work well for me. Where on the other end, like rice works super well for me, barely any glucose response at all. But quinoa, which is comparable, and oftentimes people are saying choose quinoa over rice, gives me two times the amount of glucose spike. So at the end of the day, you know, it's helpful to know this information so you can build your own little plan of which foods are best for you. So it's hard to give a general blanket statement, um, You know, glycemic index is a good general proxy, but it doesn't always pan out to be the same for person to person. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, just research that's been done of how how big a glucose increase you'll have based on a food, but it's an average based on a bunch of people's responses. So there's going to be people who respond much lower to that food and much higher to that food. So learning your unique responses is extremely interesting and useful, especially if you have a few like go-to carb sources You want to know, like, if I'm eating that every single day, I want to know if that's actually working or not. But just related outside of, you know, your unique responses to food – Um, always choosing like the closest to whole food state as possible. Like if I can give one nutrition rule, that's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. It's just try to focus as much as possible on whole foods. So choosing the steel cut oats over instant oats, that makes a big difference in every single person I see little things like that, you know, choosing even non-carbohydrate things. So choosing A piece of meat over protein powder. Something where it's like we're we're focusing on the original state of the food as close to whole food as possible. I know that sounds simple, easier said than done, but if you focus on that, if you're not sure what to eat, there's lots of conflicting nutrition advice. If you stick to that, you're gonna be in a pretty good place for the most part. So that's something I really like people to focus on.
0: Oh yeah. Great. It's great. Like we've been doing a lot of shows on low carb keto going to have one on carnivore plant-based but the key theme on all this shit is is really whole foods um, avoiding the processed foods but um i like what you're saying though uh care about you know people's individualized re- reactions to different uh gluco like uh carbohydrates because i've heard of people having white having a bigger spike with white rice compared to having you know, that muffin. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it's so important to be able to individualize this. And once again, downstream effects, if you could really have that good insulin control, avoid health complications and just feel better. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, what about other things? Like, so, you know, the reason I, I'm like, I, I don't change, change my diet personally that much, but some of the things that I'm would be really curious to see, or if you've had any experience with the clients is, you know, poor night of sleep or um, resistance training or overexercise, any other kind of factors that kind of stick out in your mind outside of what we eat?
1: Definitely. Yeah. So when we're teaching customers and clients um, how to optimize their glucose, it really comes down to four pillars. So we talk about it as like four legs of a chair. They're equally important. You knock any of that off and the chair is going to fall over. So one is good nutrition. There's lots of nuances to that, as we talked about. Um, But the second is exercise or movement. So we can even just call it movement because it doesn't have to be going to a gym and doing a specific training. It's just moving your body like we're meant to be doing. So specifically within types of exercise, resistance training is really a great option for many people. I think women especially don't do enough strength training. So I'm always trying to harp on the benefits of strength training. Um, really unique on being able to improve our insulin sensitivity and glucose disposal. So even a single session of resistance training can increase the um, receptors that take up glucose without the need of insulin. Um, it increases our cells' insulin sensitivity It improves fat oxidation. So our ability to burn fat and then glycogen, which is our storage form of glucose can either be put in the liver, which we don't want to get too big. It should just be a finite amount of space, but then it can also be put into muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. um, So skeletal muscle. So when you are using your muscles and you have more lean muscle mass, you have more room for glucose to go if you're eating carbohydrate rich foods. So, Anybody who's doing more resistance training always has better glucose control. It's just a universal truth. And so incorporating some resistance training is a great habit, but outside of that, just trying to move. So going on even a 15-minute leisurely walk after a meal can make a huge difference in your glucose control. So just moving our body, breaking up the day with some movement. So a lot of us are sitting in front of a computer, for 10 hours of the day, breaking that up with little bits of movement, going on walks. Like I even, a lot of people are working at home, so you can do weird hacks that might feel weird in an office. Like I, I have a kettlebell next to my desk. a couple of
0: swings. Oh, you serious? I, I actually have, normally yeah. <laughs> have a kettlebell next to my Just do a couple swings? While, yeah, uh, just, just every, do a couple swings. I love yeah, it.
1: you can even just do 30 seconds of activity, and that makes a difference. Um, standing after meals, moving your body. So simple things. It doesn't have to be high-intensity exercise if you're not wanting to do that or you don't have access to it. Simple movement is also important. So that's the second leg of the table. Third would be what I would consider like fasting and meal timing. So again, there's a few golden rules that everybody really should focus on. And then outside of that, there's a lot of personalization with fasting. Um, But we want most people, unless you're like, pregnant and breastfeeding or suffering with an eating disorder. So almost everybody should focus on having at least 14 hours of fasting in the day. Um, That's a good general rule of thumb and focus on shifting that mostly to daytime hours if possible and trying to avoid those later night eating, later night meals. So this is something we see over and over in people's glucose data is that they can eat that same exact meal later in the evening and, Eat that same meal during the day, and they're going to have two totally different responses because wow. we just don't process food as wow. well late at night. Um, it's it's kind of a universal truth. It's you know a lot of people have different unique responses. That's something
0: I see in almost everybody. But but you know, sorry to interrupt, but it's like so <laughs> it's one of those things that you don't know is myth or truth, right? You hear it I all know, the time, yeah. like oh, <laughs> don't eat too late. You know what I'm saying? Or and like some people, like, it doesn't m- mean anything. But this is interesting to to have some like. Real-time Definitely. data on that, yeah.
1: And when we started this company, there's very, very little research on continuous glucose data in non-diabetics. It's it's very minimal it's a little bit in diabetics and not even that much there so when we started we were like you know not quite sure what's normal abnormal what's going to be universal truths but now I've seen thousands of people's data and that's something where it's like okay that is definitely a thing and that's definitely true for almost everybody is those later night meals the glucose values overnight while you're sleeping which is normally extremely hard to measure because you're not waking up in the middle of the night to check your glucose Those values are way higher if we eat later at night and we have just a bigger response overall. So especially to carbohydrates, but really any food in general too late is going to have that effect. So that's very apparent in a lot of people. So it's good to know. Yeah. Are these things true? Because I had the same question. So I was like, I've heard it, but I've also heard people say that's stupid and it it actually matters.
0: Mm -hmm. And then the fourth pillar.
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is what I would categorize as stress. So as a big category, any type of stress on the body, which includes inadequate sleep, includes physical stressors like illness or infection, and includes psychological stress, um, like worrying and anxiety. All of these things are going to increase our glucose response and increase insulin resistance pathways. So. Um, when we're under stress, hormones like cortisol and adrenaline increase to deal with the stressor at hand. And normally, you know, this is a normal stress response that we want to have. You have this acute increase in hormones, which stimulates the creation of new glucose, gluconeogenesis, the breakdown of our glycogen stores. And it also reduces insulin levels, also to, all for the goal of we have a little extra energy to deal with the stressor right? That's what, from an evolutionary perspective, this is designed for is we have extra energy. But normally in our modern life, we don't need extra energy to deal with the stressors that we have going on. We don't need extra glucose to deal with the emails coming in for work or with your spouse, you know, fighting with you over something. That's something that we have a mismatch in our body's response and the current environment. And it becomes particularly tricky with chronic stress. So one night of bad sleep or one big fight is going to have this effect, but then it's going to go back to normal. But if we're having chronic stress on the body, whether it's, you know, night after night of poor sleep, constant anxiety and worrying then we're gonna have consistently elevated glucose levels with decreased insulin sensitivity. And this is gonna increase your risk factors for all of those insulin resistant related conditions. So I really like to emphasize to people that this is just as important as diet or exercise. A lot of people just want to be like, you know, tell you what to eat. I can control that. I have to eat. So I have to, you know, figure this part out. But a lot of people don't want to address these other factors that are just as important for overall health. So I'm really trying to emphasize that it has an equal importance. And if we're really dialed in in nutrition and exercise, but we have horrible sleep and uncontrolled anxiety we're not going to be able to make progress on our goals so people a lot of times get halted in their goals or their progress their health journey if we're not addressing those issues
0: absolutely and um i think the important thing here is realizing like you'll get that real-time feedback with the continuous glucose monitoring like if you know that you're not sleeping well and you can see Mm -hmm. the impact it's having on your your uh, glucose you're you're probably going to be more inclined to emphasize sleep over the next few days or what have you and or de-stress whichever way you need to or get out for that run or zumba class you know what i'm saying um De- so I- definitely
1: <laughs> and sleep goes bi-directional as well um which is interesting so poor sleep is going to raise your glucose levels the next day but then also going to bed with high levels of glucose is going to inhibit you from getting deep level of sleep so it goes both directions so if you're you know a night snacker and you're having You know, refined processed carbs at night, which a lot of people tend to eat those foods later at night, which as we just discussed, actually, is worse than if you're going to have it earlier in the day, or desserts are commonly eaten late at night, people will start to see when they have that data in front of them, they'll be able to make that connection that on those days when i'm doing that and i'm going to bed and my glucose levels are higher i'm not getting into as good of sleep and we're able to correlate that and pull in data from Oura ring or apple health if you have these other sleep metrics so that you can easily see that like my sleep score was not as good on that night when my glucose was also high mm-hmm. and so that is a strong connection as well and we can just tweak what you're doing in the evening and now you're getting better sleep and then the next day is better so it does go in both directions as well.
0: That's a really good point. Actually, before talking about exactly what NutriSense could do, can you talk about like the other means of glucose monitoring? Like why continuous over say traditional um, intermittent glucose checks or just Definitely. like your hemoglobin A1C or, you know what I mean? Like why continuous?
1: Yeah, so traditionally, um, if you're wanting to know what your glucose levels are like or or your risk for insulin resistance in this area, um, you might go to your doctor and you'd probably get two things. One is your fasting glucose level and your hemoglobin A1c. So fasting glucose level is helpful. It does tell us something, but it's only a small snippet of what's happening, right? It's only telling us what your body is doing in a fasted state, which most of the day we're actually in a fed state so we're totally missing that so we still want that it's a valuable metric and actually just a a nuance of that I don't know what the recommendations are in Canada but here it's we want fasting glucose traditionally uh, below 100 but there's a lot of research that 70 to 90 is really more of a sweet spot so that's just um, a nuance as well so if somebody has a fasting glucose of 98 their doctor might say it's perfectly normal but we're saying that that's definitely increased risk and we want to work on getting that below 90 Um, and then hemoglobin a1c so what this is measuring is your average glucose over a three-month period right so it's taking how much glucose is stuck on your hemoglobin of your red blood cells Um, which live about 90 days. So it's saying on average your glucose the past three months is this value. So inherently an average is just telling us the middle, right? So that glycemic variability, the swings up and down, it's missing that completely. You know, you could be swinging up to 220 and down to 60, and your hemoglobin A1C looks completely normal because you're averaging in the middle of those swings. So we're, we're missing all of that in hemoglobin A1C. And another thing is it's actually not a very good sensitive marker for glucose status. Um, it's making the assumption that your red blood cells live for 90 days, which is actually not true for a lot of people. Um, if you have anemia, Um, if you keto low carb actually changes red blood cell lifespan, hyperglycemia lowers red blood cell life, Um, blood loss, smoking, all of these things can have an influence on our red blood cells, which can give either a slightly high or lower A1C value than true value. So when we're measuring A1C, or we're measuring average glucose on CGM, it, does, it only matches up to an A1C about 60% of the time. So it's not wow. an amazing marker either. Um, if your A1C is 12%, we're like, okay, it's probably high. Like that's a pretty good <laughs> indication. But if it's, you know, 5.9 and you're getting worried about that, it might not actually be that bad or that good. You know, we don't know for sure when it's in that little range. So mm-hmm. that's my caveat on A one C is both of those metrics, fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C, they miss a lot. We have no idea what's happening in the postprandial state. We don't know what's happening after you're eating. We don't know what your glycemic variability is like. And they're just not super sensitive markers. So no. What seems to happen is that signs of insulin resistance don't begin to show up on those two values, fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C, for about 20 years after you might see, 10 to 20 years after you might see initial problems in more sensitive markers, such as an oral glucose tolerance test, which is not practical to do in a routine setting, um, or a CGM, or other metrics like a fasting insulin, um, all these other metrics we want to look at for insulin resistance. So those two are a little bit lagging. The other thing you can do is you can get a glucose meter over the counter or order it online. And you're essentially, you know, just taking finger pricks every once in a while. So this is also useful. Every once in a while, you could check what's happening after a meal. You know, you could check your finger stick two hours after a meal and see where you're at. But it's hard to see the actual shape of the curve because you're checking it randomly, right? Um, I always like to tell this story of, you know, I didn't know that I had a giant glucose spike from pineapple because I had a glucose meter before I had a CGM. I was obsessed with glucose for a long time now. And I would check two hours after trying different foods. And I checked two hours after trying pineapple. And before I ate the pineapple, it was like 80. And after I ate the pineapple, two hours later, it was also 80. So I was like, That sounds pretty good. Seems like a good fruit for me. And then when I have CGM and I try it, I'm spiking up to 160 within 20 minutes of eating the pineapple. And then it comes back down to normal. So we want it to come back down to normal. That shows that I'm not insulin resistant. My body's able to handle that glucose load, but it's going above what I consider optimal. I'm just, it's happening really soon and really fast. And I was totally missing Mm. that on a glucose meter. So it's hard to catch that. Like in a healthy, non-insulin resistant person, you usually spike within 30 minutes of eating and it should come back down fairly quickly. And that glucose spike usually lasts about five to 10 minutes. So it's really hard to catch that on a glucose meter if you're trying to figure out which foods are optimal. Because um, things can swing, and if you're having reactive hypoglycemia and you happen to check on a glucose meter when it's on the down part, you might think that you're like, "My glucose is amazing," <laughs> but really, you had this huge swing. So it's just hard to catch it. I'm still useful. I still encourage people to try it because they're really cheap and they can give you some information about yourself. It's just not the whole picture. Right. Um, as opposed to continuous glucose monitor is the only thing where you, you're getting to see it continuously. So. Seeing it while I'm sleeping, that's super interesting. Seeing the exact shape of my postprandial response. How big is that area under the curve? How long did it take me to get back down to normal? Was there any dip after I was eating? All of these nuances with continuous with glucose data that is extremely useful and really, really early indicators of insulin resistance. Those glycemic swings and those postprandial responses are one of the earliest indicators of problems. That's what's interesting to me about CGM data is because there's no way to capture that otherwise.
0: Wow. No, the that, very good, good points there. Kara. Um, um, so NutriSense, what, like if people decide to join the program, like what exactly is it all about? How do, how do you guys enhance or optimize health?
1: Definitely. So you get three components when you sign up for the program, one is, of course, the continuous glucose monitor. You know They last 14 days, so you get two weeks of continuous data, and then we have different programs depending on how long you wanna do it. Um, we have options where you just get one CGM. If you just want two weeks of data, because maybe you know, you're pretty healthy, you eat consistently the same things, and you just wanna double check a few things, like, am I, is what I'm doing working? You know, or Check a few couple responses. That's a pretty good option. We also have monthly subscriptions, so you get two CGMs a month for different time spans depending on your goals, and that's really great if you want to try different diets and experiment, or if maybe you have early signs of insulin resistance or prediabetes, obesity, PCOS, Hashimoto's. We have lots of people like that trying to work on improving their metabolic health, and that takes a little bit of time, so we definitely recommend the monthly program. But you get the CGM, and then our app is how you see the glucose data. You can also track your nutrition information. You know, we're pulling in data on your exercise and your sleep and all of these other lifestyle factors that we want you to look at in addition to your glucose. Um, We don't want to be overly myopic about glucose. It's extremely useful, but we want to take into the whole picture. And then the third component is the dietitian support. So that is – what I lead. And I obviously think it's extremely important because we don't want to just be a wearable that's a bunch of data without any sort of interpretation or signal. So we're all about data over dogma and having an expert that's available to help you direct which way you should be going so our bodies are complicated it's not always super straightforward there's lots of nuances involved and so there's a dietician available for anybody who starts the program to help them understand their data help suggest changes to make to optimize their glucose or help suggest experiments if they just want to learn about as much about themselves as possible so the dietitian is there for you to use as little or as much as you like. Um, some people are talking to their dietitian every single day, all day long, and some people just wanna check in every once in a while. So it's really however you want to utilize that service. We're not like pushing a diet. You know, It's not like here's the program you have to follow. We're just there to help guide you through the process and make sure you learn as much as possible about yourself. So that's really our goal is just improve metabolic health and learn as much as possible about yourself so you can make informed decisions.
0: Wow. And once again, the the part I really enjoy about the company is it's personalized. It's really approaching the client or patient on, on what their needs are and not a cookie cutter approach. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be quote unquote keto. You don't have to be vegan, whatever you want to call it. It's what works for you. And and also just I, I mean having that expertise like a, a diet, access to a dietitian to be able to run things by and 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 get some advice on I, I think it's a key part of what we need in healthcare just you know whether it's health coaching or whether it's just someone to hear the concerns and have that mm-hmm. ability to to provide feedback i, I think it's ultra important um so yeah i I like where you guys are throwing down, so Kara, is there any kind of do you get any like testimonials or stories from from some clients in terms of how NutriSense has impacted their life or of or what have you?
1: yeah, absolutely. um we're always getting testimonials from our customers, which is the most exciting thing about this job, you know. Going back to my original story of being in the hospital, I was so frustrated because I felt like I couldn't make a difference like I wanted to. You know, I think healthcare professionals are really in it because they want to help people and they care about people. And it's frustrating when you feel like you can't do that but i feel like we're really able to actually address some of these root problems for so many people all the time and so just yesterday we have somebody you know weight loss isn't our primary focus we're addressing because i do believe that sometimes you have really poor metabolic health and you're a normal weight. And if we obsess over weight, that's losing the bigger picture, or maybe you're just 10 pounds overweight, but everything looks amazing. All your other labs look amazing and you're really upset about that 10 pounds but everything looks good, so we do want to focus different directions. But we have somebody just recently who has been able to consistently lose weight now because she was able to identify that stress factor. And that was the thing that was holding her back. And so she's able to make that connection between, wow, I can really see how high my glucose values go and my body's in a constant stress state because of you know rumination and anxiety. On the weekends, her glucose would be 20 points lower, and then on the weekdays, 20 points higher. And so wow. it became very obvious of what was going on, and it was stress. And then we've worked on that, and from there, now she's able to reach her weight loss goals, and that's why she came to us in the first place, is because she was hitting a wall with weight loss goals. And so sometimes it's it's these other factors that we talked about, and it's not just diet and exercise. Um, So that's just one example, Um, but all the time we're having people who are, they're learning unique things about their body that they just wouldn't have known otherwise, and now they can feel confident about which path they're choosing. And like you said, yeah, there's not like a cookie cutter advice we're giving. And I always make the joke that you can tell who on podcasts and who's writing books that never works with real patients or clients because they're just saying this one thing is going to fix everyone's problem. so true. And as soon as you start working with real people, you realize that that's so not true. You can't give this one thing and expect it to work for everyone. It's just not true. And a good example of that is like, yeah, the low carb keto diet, it works really well for a lot of people. Um, If you have signs of insulin resistance, if your glucose is really out of control, that's usually the first thing we're going to suggest. And it works really, really well for 80 or 90% of people in that category. But then there's 10, 20% of people that it it makes things worse and it looks terrible. And it's like, okay, well, now we need to try something else. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't work perfectly for everybody. And people get frustrated when they're following the diet or the thing that everyone says is going to be a miracle worker and they're not seeing any progress. So that's why, you know, my big rule is date over dogma. If you're trying something and you're really sticking to it and you're giving it your best for two months and you're making no progress or you feel worse, Try something else. Like people keep doing it because they think it's the thing that they're supposed to be doing, but try something else. Trust Mm -hmm. me, there's not a one size fits all and and we all are different. And I think there's a lot we don't know about why we're different. We'll probably start figuring that out time, you know, as time goes on, but we don't know yet. And so the best thing to do is to try different things. Um, and back it up with data and labs and subjective feelings and metrics and then keep pivoting until you find what works best for you.
0: Love it. Love it. And I was, I was thinking as a, I, I, I did a COVID interview this morning and I, and I, and in preparation for this and in talking to you now, I you also think like what an opportunity here too, and in, in, in terms of, during the pandemic, where we know poor metabolic health is is clearly linked to poor outcomes, and like I want people to know, like you see it in the literature, but I see it when I'm in the ICU, legit yeah. for sure. Diabetes, poor metabolic health, hypertension, like obesity, it's there. Um, but just you know, just maybe this is another thing that gives people another tool that that they could use to try and enhance their metabolic profile. Cause I mean, uh, to me, this is the time we really, really should be talking about this shit.
1: Absolutely. It's only highlighted how unhealthy we are as a society and it's accelerated that path to poor outcomes. So I want people, you know, that link is, is absolutely undeniable at this point in time that you have insulin resistance or any sort of chronic condition, you're more likely to get COVID and you're more likely to have worse outcomes. But I want people to be inspired by this and not debilitated or upset about this. Like now is the time to get metabolically healthy and we have a choice. This can be inspiring and motivating, or cannot be. It's totally your choice. We are in control of our health and we can improve our metabolic health with a few things. Well, like a CDM, you can accelerate that learning and speed up that process. You don't even need any fancy tools to get in better metabolic health and improve your chances during this pandemic. And this isn't going to be the only pandemic we face. You know, another pathogen is gonna come one day and the question is, are, are we going to be ready? Are we going to improve our health and be ready next time? You could do a few simple things, you know, focusing on the whole foods, going on walks after your meals, doing some intermittent small amounts of exercise throughout the day trying to avoid those late night meals, simple things that you can do right now that are going to make a meaningful impact. I promise. And that can reduce your risks right now in this real pandemic. And so I want people to be inspired by that. We're hundred percent in control.
0: Taking the power back y'all like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. actions you could do now that can improve your profile in weeks. You know what I'm saying? And so like Mm -hmm. feel inspired as as, I care was saying, like, You're you're not powerless and you don't need to be necessarily losing 20 pounds in two weeks. You could be the same weight, but improve your metabolic profile and be that much more in in a position to combat uh, COVID or any other illness. But um, yeah, this is what I've been trying to preach to the world because we're Mm -hmm. just not talking about it enough. Um, I got it because you're an ICU dietitian. I have to tackle this a little bit. How do you feel like we, you touched on this a bit about, you know, in in hospital giving a lot of refined carbs and so forth. How do you feel like we are in terms of what we're giving our critically ill patients? Like I'm talking, uh, the type of feeds that we're giving the, uh, uh, timing of like we're giving continuous Mm -hmm. feeds, whether that's good or not. Like it really got me thinking more about, how we're approaching a critically ill patient because, like, for the people listening, you got if you're coming into the ICU, if we're seeing you, this is the sickest you're ever going to be. Okay, your life is reliant on a machine to keep you alive. Whether mm-hmm. that's uh, a ventilator, whether it's medication to boost your blood pressure, whether it's a dialysis mm-hmm. machine, like this is how on the, the brink you are. Okay, inflammation's happening all over the place. You're infected. There's uh, you had a heart attack. Whatever. And so the more I'm, we're learning about what, how, what we, you ingest, how it can affect uh, your response, it really is, we got to ask ourselves, what are we giving to our critically ill people? Sorry, that was a bit of a rant and a long-winded way of asking a question, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I've never really thought of it in this realm because when we are in that critically ill state, we want to start like something like tube feeds as soon as possible, and we do want it continuously just because you're in such a catabolic state that your body is breaking down that lean body tissue, and we want to get some sort of nutrients into you ASAP. But I do have a huge problem with what our traditional tube feeds are, right? If you look at the label on those things, mm. it's corn syrup and it's like pure soybean oil if you look at tpn i mean that the fats are soybean oil in europe i don't know what it's like in canada but in europe they have the options where it's like an olive oil emulsion or it's these different types of oils but in the u.s where we love our soybeans and we love our corn it's soybean oil and then it's corn syrup in the tpn bags and i cannot imagine that that's doing very well for the patients you know we're running tpn at the same time we're running an insulin drip and it's like okay um something doesn't sound right there right Mm -hmm. we're putting glucose in your system while we're also putting insulin into your system to match it um so i don't have a great solution for like icu nutrition in terms of two feeds and and tpn because we do want to give people nutrients in that state because they're so catabolic and the standard formulas, we don't have any other options. Like I think the people making these products should think about reformulating their products a little bit to be a little bit more um, actually healthy. Um, When children are put on tube feeds and they need to be on tube feeds for like the rest of their life or for several years, a lot of parents will do just home tube feeds where they're, they're blending their own formulas and putting real food in there because as much, the options that are available are pretty atrocious. Um, so I think that the people making the products really need to reformulate those. But then as soon as we're transitioning somebody off tube feeds or TPN, we need to really address what we're, being, what we're feeding them on the trays. Uh, yeah. The food that comes on the patient trays in the hospitals I've worked in is sad. It's dismal. And I'll have patients telling me, I never forget the first time a diabetic patient told me, he's like, I'm on a diabetic friendly meal in the hospital. Is this what I should be doing when I go home? Like, is this what I should follow? And I'm looking down at his tray and it's, you know, it's a white roll and it's fruit cocktail and it's orange juice, but it's carb-controlled because they're counting the total carbohydrates. And I'm like, no, don't listen to anything we're (laughs) telling you here. And it's a terrible example. You know, some people are really like not sure where to start. They're like, okay, well, I'll just eat what I'm getting fed here at home because that seems like the hospital is feeding me this. It must be what I'm supposed to be eating. Mm -hmm. And it's a bad example. We're not feeding people healthy food in the hospital. Uh, We're not trying very hard to make it appealing. Um, And we want people to eat because we don't want them to lose that lean body mass. They're just sitting there in a catabolic state. We do need people to eat. So, you know, the criticism is if we make the food super healthy, that people won't eat it and then they'll become malnourished. But I think we all know that healthy food can taste good too. You just have to know what you're doing. I think we need people who actually know how to cook in these hospitals, maybe chefs or people who can actually make the food appetizing, but not totally processed and nutrient devoid. Um, so it's a big problem to tackle. <laughs>
0: Amazing. Amazing. Sorry for that. put you on the spot there, but I, no, you're I good. thought maybe you'd have some, uh, some insights. But it's helpful, actually, just in, in, including thinking about what we give our patients as they get better mm-hmm. on the ward. I, I, I think I gave this story once before, but I'll never forget when I walked into a ward. No, I was walking past the room. I looked to my right, and this patient's eating what was it? Uh, pureed French toast. And I was like, no human being in the world deserves to eat this right now. Like, yeah. this, that is atrocious. I don't care if diabetic, non-diabetic, whatever. Ugh. It was like, I wouldn't give my dog that.
1: that yeah. Kind of and a lot of times what we're feeding people, like when they transition to food, is we're just giving them a bunch of, like, glucerna or, you know, the drinks that, to get enough calories. Yeah. Um, but that stuff is literally just sugar with a bunch of protein added to it. Um, So I don't think, yeah, seed oil, it's inflammatory. It's going to spike your glucose, but you're getting calories. And so it's like, yeah, it's not a good solution.
0: But I feel you. Listen, Kara, this was tremendous. I think this has been inspiring for a lot of our listeners that are wondering about how to get healthier, how to improve their metabolic profile, knowing that this is another asset they can use to enhance their, like, health and longevity, especially during a pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, where can uh, people connect with either you or NutriSense?
1: Yeah, you can come to our website, NutriSense.io, and that's where you can sign up for the program. Um, On Instagram, we're also NutriSense.io. We're putting out lots of information about glucose and health and insulin resistance. And then you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter as well. It's Kara Collier one.
0: Bam. There you go, crew. Thanks so much for joining us. And I really appreciate it, Kara.
1: It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: What cast? Tell me that wasn't fresh. Dynamic full of game, full of knowledge. Carol, she simply just killed it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. If you love this stuff, leave a rating, five-star rating, a review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, it improves the visibility of the show. So we want to continue to change that boogie. And uh, guys, thanks for listening and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.